Welcome back to The Jacob Johnston Show, where each Sunday we talk about the biggest news events of the week. And the biggest news item this week is that in the political prosecution of former President Trump, the left has secured a baseless indictment. Now, you have gone through here and probably heard or watched a lot of analysis of the indictment itself just to see how baseless it is. So first off, they're trying to prosecute President Trump on the basis of a business record crime, one that is long past the statute of limitation. And they're trying to revive this supposed crime by tying it to some type of other crime, by claiming that it was in furtherance of either a federal crime or another state crime, but they can't list what the crime is that they are using in order to get past the statute of limitations on the business record crime. And even when it comes to the business record crime, that is a very weak case as far as whether or not there was any violation of business record. So the reason I say that is I'm trying to figure out how paying a personal lawyer from your personal bank account for a personal matter is somehow related to business record. Now, how the left is trying to argue this, basically, is that when President Trump became the president, he had to put his assets basically into some type of trust, you know, a holding company to hold on and manage his assets while he was president of the United States. And in that, he basically had to appoint someone to manage the affair. And so it was the creation of technically a legal entity in order to manage his personal affairs while he was president of the United States. And as such, there would be a responsibility to keep records of his financial affairs. And they're basically trying to say that because he had someone within the Trump organization appointed to handle the invoicing and payments and his personal estate while he was president of the United States, that that somehow creates a business record. Now, this is a very weak legal argument to begin with because it is a situation where the so-called called legal entity only exists in order to manage his personal affair. And the records in question was basically, and if I were to give an analogy, it's basically like you receiving a bill for your electricity, you know, or your internet or, you know, whatever it is that you receive bills for in your life. And then you go on and enter that bill into QuickBooks. Let's say you use personal financial software and that creates a record. And so basically what they're trying to do is take that situation and claim it's a business record because he had to create a legal entity to hold his asset as president. You get what I'm saying? And then they further go off to try and make this argument that it was a falsification of business records because the payments were for a retainer or legal services. But they're going off and trying to claim that that is a false business record because there wasn't a written agreement. Now, Go back and check business law. Go back and just take a look at contract law. You don't even need to go to business law. Just go to contract law. A verbal contract is just as legally binding and enforceable as a written contract. Now, a verbal contract may be slightly harder to prove because you need to have some sort of record, some sort of action that proves the existence of a verbal contract. Whereas in a written contract, you can go through and take a look at, oh, it's right here on paper. But a verbal contract is just as legally binding if you can provide evidence that the verbal contract exists. 
And so when they're going off and trying to say, well, this isn't for a retainer because there is no contract, no written agreement. There is no requirement that it be in writing. You understand this. Take a look at business law. There is no requirement that it be in writing. Now, being in writing is a smart practice, yes. Being in writing helps make it very clear what it was and wasn't agreed to. And you may be thinking that a verbal contract and only doing it on a handshake deal is incredibly stupid. That, that can be your opinion, but there is no requirement that a contract for services be in writing. A verbal contract in business law is just as binding and valid. And so when we go through and we take a look at the situation with Michael Cohen and them say they had no written contract for a retainer. Well, let's actually take a look at this from a verbal contract situation. So they enter into a verbal agreement. And what is evidence of that verbal agreement? Well, you get invoices, invoices that specify that it is for legal services. You get payment, payments that are specified for legal services. And so you start seeing that there is a record of a verbal contract, which is perfectly legal. Now, if we go through and we take a look at the other part of this situation, beyond how it's just fraudulent for them to say this is a business record when it wholeheartedly related to personal issues and paying from personal accounts, and you get past the whole, you don't need the contract to be in writing, that verbal contracts and agreements are just as valid. Well, then we got to go through and take a look at more about the situation and our analysis. And as weak as the left's case is, given what we just discussed, it gets even weaker when you realize that this is about an intent crime, that it is a law that is basically saying you only really violated it if you intended to do so. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, Michael Cohen at the time was a licensed lawyer. He was supposed to be a legal expert. And so it's kind of hard to create the idea of intent on Donald Trump if he's taking advice from a lawyer, because what is the presumption when you hire a lawyer? They know what the law is. They know what is and isn't legal and that they counsel you on what your legal options are, right? And so here it is, you get a situation where, you know, Sloppy Daniels comes out and wants to make an accusation against Trump. Now, people with lots of money, you know, you're high executive CEOs, Hollywood stars, you know, rich and famous, they have people coming out of the woodworks all the time trying to make an accusation and telling them, hey, you know, I'm going to be accusing you of X, Y, Z. Now, if you don't want me to go public with the accusation, go ahead and give me some money now. And for a lot of these people, it is actually cheaper and better and less hassle to just pay them have them sign a non-disclosure agreement so that they can't go public with their accusations as false as they may be and keeps them from coming back and keeps them from going public, giving other people ideas to do the same thing, right? Because if they were to go off and say, no, I'm not paying this ransom, what could happen? The person goes public and tries this in the court of public opinion. And if you're a Hollywood actor or a CEO even though there is not a shred of evidence to back up the claims, the mob and the court of public opinion could result in such backlash that your movie career is destroyed or you're forced out of your company 
forced out of your position as CEO because it looks bad for the company. And so your life is completely destroyed, even if you never did anything, just from the accusation and the damage to your reputation. And then to try and get your reputation back, you got to take them to court and sue them for defamation. Well, when you go through and you do that, you realize that most people making these accusations, they don't have a whole lot of money to begin with. So you're never going to recruit the financial damage that they are causing. And while people may pay attention to the initial accusations being reported by the media, the media never report the outcome of any defamation lawsuit, or very rarely do they ever report it. So while you go off and get the initial damage to your reputation from the accusations, you're never cleared in the court of public opinion because no one ever pays attention to the full outcome. So you never get that resolve, that clearing of your reputation. And so even if you win, you are paying more money on attorney fees than it costs to pay the person to just go away. You never get, be able to recoup the money because the person making the accusation doesn't have anywhere near the money to pay for your legal expenses. And your reputation is never cleared because no one ever pays attention to the end result. So in the end, it is sometimes cheaper and better for your long-term career to pay off the extortionist and then just have them sign an agreement that makes it impossible for them to go public with their false accusation. And in this situation, what happened? Sloppy Daniels comes out or approaches Trump about a false accusation that she plans on making. And so what does Trump do? Trump goes to his lawyer and goes, hey, this is what's going on. This person wants to extort me for money, saying that if I don't pay them, that they're going to go ahead and make these false accusations and that will damage my you know, career process. You know, what can I do? Asking a lawyer, what are my options? And when the lawyer comes back and says, okay, here's what your options are for how to handle the situation. If you're asking the lawyer, what are my options? And the lawyer comes back and goes, this is what we can do. And then you choose from one of the options presented to you by your lawyer on what you can do. What, what problem does that create for the left's political prosecution? He can't be proven to have intended to commit a crime by asking a lawyer, what are my options? And then trusting the advice of a lawyer and choosing one of the options, because you're assuming that when you get advice from a lawyer, that the advice is going to be based off of what your legal options are. Then secondly, as far as the business record crime, if they're trying to say that the that the business records in question is that of Michael Cohen's, well, how is Trump knowing how he is setting up the record? You know, and by the way, if the lawyer goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up, you know, this entity here, and we're going to structure the payments this way. You're assuming if you're the client that what the lawyer is suggesting on not only what your options are, but on how to exercise that option, you're assuming that it's within the law. After all, that's why you hire a lawyer to figure out what you can legally do about a situation. And so how do you prove intent on the part of President Trump if his entire situation is he asked a lawyer, the lawyer gave him advice, and he took that advice? So when it comes to the business record side of it, you don't actually have intent, which is needed for it to be a crime. Plus, you don't actually have a business record 
to prosecute a business record crime, at least not on the part of Trump, unless you're trying to talk about Michael Cohen and how he structured everything, then okay, yes, you have a business record, but it's not Trump that engaged in a business record crime. In that situation, the entire business record crime would be that against Michael Cohen. And so the left has absolutely nothing, and yet they went ahead with the political prosecution. With all of that said, it is very obvious that the indictment, just as soon as it came out, it was almost completely and totally debunked within minutes of people reading it, realizing what a complete sham it is. So after the indictment has been exposed as a complete sham, and that this entire case is about a political prosecution, what was the left's response to that? Well, all you need to do is take a look at the New York Times, Pamela Paul, which argues it doesn't matter if Trump is, is innocent. He deserves to be convicted and found guilty because justice. That's right. That's their entire argument is it doesn't matter if Trump is completely innocent of the accusations. He still deserves to be convicted and go to jail because in their mind, that would be justice. How sick, twisted, and warped do you have to be? And of course, they make this argument by trying to claim that Trump committed a whole bunch of other crimes for which he got away with. Now, they can't actually produce any evidence of any said crimes, and they've been trying for years. They did the whole Trump-Russia hoax where they made accusations against Trump, ones that they imagined out of thin air, paid someone to write it down, and then have the FBI investigate what they knew was a complete sham. But they keep on going through and making all these accusations, and they keep doing so because they know that for their base, they don't need any evidence of their accusations being true. All they need to do is just make accusation after accusation after accusation. And they're utilizing that old saying that if you tell a lie long enough, loud enough, often enough, people will perceive it's true. And so even though they have zero evidence of any criminality committed by President Trump, they have ingrained it in their head that Trump is somehow a criminal, even if they can't find a crime that he actually committed. And therefore, anything that they do to try and get him on something would be justice, even if what they convict him of is a crime that he never committed. This is the twisted logic of the left. Now, for them, and what they're trying to say is justice, the real reason for Trump's prosecution is that he was president, and that he was president as a Republican, that he stood up to the swamp, that unlike previous Republicans, you know, most of which, once they get into office, they go along with the swamp, so they're not as bad, they're not as criminal. They still want to defeat them, and they still think they're horrible people, but at least they go along with the swamp but not Trump. He stood up to the establishment. He ran as a Republican. He won, and then he actually did what he promised to do on the campaign trail, and that is an unforgivable sin, and that they must send a warning that says anybody who dares challenge the Democrat Party, anybody who dare challenges the swamp will be persecuted, and they will use the law to prosecute you without any crimes being committed. And if they can do this to Trump, it's a warning shot to everyone else. Hey, don't you dare challenge us. Don't you dare disagree. Hey, if you're a Republican, you might want to think twice before even running for public office. 
Because if we can do this to a former president, we'll do it to you, whether you're a mayor, a governor, a state legislature, a House or Senate member. It doesn't matter anymore because they were able to do this to Trump while he was in the White House. And then after he left the White House, they made it very clear that they're going to continue to go after him. And so this is a warning by the tyrants of the left. Hey, you know, don't expect you actually winning to protect you. In fact, winning just means we're going to target you more. And the more you stand up to us, the more we're going to engage in actions to try and throw you in jail. And we just proved that, hey, we don't even need to have evidence of a crime. Heck, we don't even need to specify what crimes you're accused of as we prosecute you for nothing. And that's what this is about for the left. It's about the weaponization of government to suppress their opposition, to silence them, and to interfere with elections so that they can engage in a one-party rule and eliminate any idea of freedom or the constitutional republic. And I got to wonder, how much of the public is actually going along with this idea that it doesn't matter whether or not someone is guilty of a crime, we just need to convict them because we don't like their policy. How is that actually playing out with the public? I don't know. I mean, we get a poll here, and this is a very disturbing poll that showed around 60% of the population believes that this is a baseless political prosecution, including a majority of Democrats. But what was it? Nearly 40% still agreed with doing so. That is a very scary poll when you go through and you take a look at it. That really goes through to show just how much we have declined as a country. And I'm going to circle back to how it is that they are doing that. And that is, you know, the public schools, how they've been indoctrinating people later on in the episode, as I talk about what we need to do in the public schools to stop the insanity, because the left has been using the public schools to create this insanity. Now, with all of that said, is there any positive to Trump being indicted like this? And yes, and potentially no. And so when I say yes, I'm going off and I'm talking about more than the fact that since the indictment, Trump has surged in the poll. I'm talking about more than since the indictment, Trump's fundraising has set new records. And I'm talking more than the fact that because of what the left did, it gives Trump a great political platform. This whole, the left is tyrant. The left is engaged in political prosecutions. If they can do this to me, they can do it to you even easier, right? And how if elected, it would be a second term. He doesn't have to worry about moderating for re-election efforts and can really go after and obliterate the swamp. Yes, those are great things. And yes, that can help if we have free and fair elections. But I'm talking about more than that. And that is, if you're the Democrat Party and you're basically a criminal operation, you shouldn't be setting precedent that makes it easier to prosecute you and strip away your protection. So the Democrat Party, for the last 20 years at least, has been engaged in criminal operations. But they have always been protected against prosecution. They've been protected by the DOJ and the FBI. They've been protected by a corrupt government from any prosecutions for any crimes that they commit. And we saw this, especially with Hillary Clinton. Despite a mountain of evidence of her criminality, the FBI 
wasn't investigating her for prosecution of her crimes. No, no, no. They were pretending to investigate her while helping her cover up her crime. They were accomplices after the fact in the crime itself to protect her from prosecution. Well, with what just happened, they set the precedent that DAs and um, AGs can now go after the Democrats and not have to hope for the DOJ to prosecute them for something. And so now any Republican DA, any Republican attorney general worth anything is looking at what just happened to President Trump and now looking at all the crimes the Democrats have committed. And if any of those crimes have been committed within their jurisdiction, they now have the ability to prosecute and tie it to a federal crime because that's exactly what the left did and set a precedence for, get the indictment and start trial and start prosecuting them. I'm not talking about engaging in political prosecutions tit for tat. I'm talking about the crimes in which there is mountains of evidence of. That means Hillary Clinton loses the protection of the DOJ and the FBI because they can't protect her from state attorney generals, from local DA. That also means the Obamas are open to prosecution. Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi, although the chances of Nancy Pelosi being prosecuted for anything in the state of California is next to nothing, but you get the point. If she committed any of her crimes outside of California in a Republican district, she is now open to prosecution. And so is Joe Biden and his family, which by the way, the Republicans have gone through and now are subpoenaing in the House of Representatives, the bank records of Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and the rest of their family for their corrupt dealings with China. Oh, that should be interesting. Now, as far as it goes, we've had these hearings before, you know, Benghazi and, well, too many to count, really. And nothing ever comes of the hearings because the DOJ won't prosecute. But... But, and this is the important thing of this precedence, we no longer have to wait and hope for the DOJ to prosecute. If they can go through and establish the crime that the Democrats have committed, and there happens to be a Republican DA or attorney general in charge in the state or area in which that crime was carried out, we don't need to wait for the DOJ. We now have precedent that allows us to prosecute it from a state level. And so, that is some good thing. Now, do I think that that's going to finally lead to the Democrats being held accountable? And this is where I'm a little pessimistic. First off, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the Republican Party standing up. I mean, that has been, well, the general theme of the Republican Party, just rolling over and letting the Democrats get away with everything. However, there is a growing segment of the Republicans you know, such as Ron DeSantis and so forth, that are finally standing up to the left and are looking to hold the left accountable for their crime, accountable for their actions, and are pushing back. So maybe the tide of change is coming along. That after President Trump, enough Republicans have grown a backbone that they are now looking at this and they will hold the Democrats accountable. So all we need to do now is where in the past, the House of Representatives would investigate something, subpoena records, establish without a shadow of a doubt of a crime being committed, and then 
refer the crime to the DOJ, that does absolutely nothing. Now they just need to establish that the crimes happen in a Republican-controlled area and let the prosecution begin. Now, does that mean that is going to be successful? I don't know. The left may be going off and banking on the idea that every jury assembled will include at least one leftist on the jury, that no matter how much evidence establishing criminality is presented, no matter how much it is established that the Democrats committed a crime beyond any and all reasonable doubt, that that leftist will refuse to vote guilty and every prosecution will end in a hung jury. That is a possibility. That may be what the left is banking on and calculated when going after Trump this way. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't be painful for them, as you know they would still have all the legal costs and expenses of a criminal trial. Now, with that, they may try to come back and say, oh, this is political prosecution. This is public corruption election interference, and then try to charge the DAs and the AGs going after them for their crimes, while at the same hand, making sure that when they engage in baseless political prosecutions, that there is no punishment there, that they will always get away with it. I mean, that's always that possibility, that they're going to engage in baseless prosecutions and not suffer any consequences. And then when they're prosecuted for actual crimes, then they'll claim it's public corruption, political prosecution, and election interference, and then the federal government go after the DAs and the AG, while simultaneously banking on there always being at least one member of the jury who is a crazed leftist that will never convict them or vote to convict them of anything. So that may be part of the calculation. I hate to leave it on such a grim analysis of the situation, but that's how I see it as the only reason why they would take action that basically surrenders their protection from prosecution for their crime. And speaking of creating precedent, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calls on the Biden administration to disregard a Texas judge's ruling on abortion pill. So now the left is trying to go through and set up a new precedent that basically says, if you don't agree with a judge's ruling, just ignore it. Now, I have mixed feelings about no. And the mixed feelings is, I don't think that we should, in fact, be held to a corrupt ruling. That if a judge issues a ruling that is blatantly in violation of the Constitution and constitutionally enacted laws, that that ruling should just be tossed out. That if a judge goes off and tries to legislate from the bench, and just because one judge issues a completely bogus ruling, that that shouldn't mean that every other judge for every other case that is similar should be bound to that corrupt ruling. But on the other hand, we have judges for a reason. When we have legitimate judges, judges that are about doing their job and not trying to legislate from the bench, well, that is part of the constitutional process for disagreements with government and whether or not the government can actually enact certain laws. And so I kind of have mixed feelings uh, about this, but I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really thought this out because if she's going to go through and say, hey, from now on, if we don't agree with the judge's ruling, if we don't like what they say, 
then we're just going to ignore it and do it anyway. Well, what's the precedent that that set? A judge's ruling no longer matters. And if they are going to go off and advocate that any ruling that they disagree with, they're just going to ignore and violate anyways, well, then Republicans are going to come out and go, okay, if that's the way you want it, we're now ignoring everything about what you rule, all right? That means all the judges that have ruled for insane leftist policies, especially those that are outside the scope of the Constitution or constitutional legal authority to do so, we'll just ignore, right? And we'll just blatantly ignore, you know, and the that, of course, the Democrats will try and go off and go, okay, you're going to ignore the judge's ruling. We're going to cut off federal funds, to which we would respond, okay, but then we're no longer sending taxes to D.C. You see how that goes. I mean, they could say they're no, no longer going to, you know, issue federal funds, that they're going to block federal funds for that state or for that area that disregards a judge's order for something that they want. And then we go back and go, okay, well, then we just stop paying taxes to the government and just keep the money to ourselves. You see the slippery slope that this causes, you know, and could be dangerous. But at the same hand, if they want to go off and set this precedent, then it means we can nullify everything that we don't like. So all those judges at the state level that are then going off and saying <clears throat> that, oh, yes, so even though uh, abortion is no longer a federally constitutional right on, you know, because of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, wouldn't you know it? We found something in the state constitution that makes it a constitutional right within the state. Well, based off of the precedent that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to set, the governor can just go, you know what? Go pound sand, judge. We're banning abortion and we're going to go through and we're going to you know, um, not issue any licenses and we'll punish anybody who does it anyways. And by the way, we'll establish new uh, judicial procedures to get around your court so that we can go through and prosecute them because, you know, the state Supreme Court decides X and we decide to prosecute because we don't agree with it and we decide to prosecute on what the courts say is legal. Well, then the court will just toss out the case. So what's the natural end run around that? We set up an alternative legal system to prosecute such crime. You see how that goes. What Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is proposing can severely backfire against her. Or not only that, but if judges keep issuing rulings that have no basis in the Constitution or law, what could happen? Well, we start engaging in impeachment of these judges, you know, especially in areas where we control the legislature. We impeach the judges and replace them. I mean, if we're going off and saying we're no longer going to respect what a judge rules, which in some cases, I can agree with when they try to legislate from the bench. Well, then we're just going to ignore any judge ruling in leftist favor. You see how the left doesn't really think things through and how some of the things that they do, while detestable, we can do back to them. Now, the left's response to a lot of the things that are going on, the shift, the shift back towards conservatism is they want to take control of the internet. And they're trying to use TikTok as an end to being able to control and censor all information on the internet. 
So as you know, there's a whole issue going on around TikTok and wanting to ban TikTok, um, which there's a lot of issues and problems with TikTok. The problem is when it comes to giving the government the ability to ban a platform, even if it is TikTok, is what's next? Then what? Is what we need to be asking. Think about it like this. Look at what Biden and his administration is doing with Title IX, where they're going off and they're trying to redefine gender and sex as gender identity for transgenderism, to try and force the schools to allow boys to compete against girls and then take away all of their scholarship and opportunity. When we come through and take a look at something like legislation to ban TikTok, well, if they can just rewrite laws by redefining gender for Title IX, then how easy would it be for them to take a look at legislation that would ban TikTok to then reinterpret, redefine the language in order to go through and use that to ban, let's say, Rumble or Truth Social, Parler or Gitter, or any other platform that the Democrats don't control, the alternative internet social media, the parallel internet, where we created our own platforms to get around their censorship. If we let them set the precedent on TikTok that allows them to ban certain apps and platforms, then they will just use their creative reimagining of definitions to then go after any platform that they don't control and have the ability to censor. So I just want you to keep that in mind as you're going through and determining whether or not you support banning TikTok is you got to look at it beyond TikTok and you got to ask yourself what next. And by taking a look at all the things that they have rewritten in law, not by getting it passed through the legislature, but by imaginative redefining of the language, how this could be used long-term to be able to implement total government control and censorship of the internet. And remember what the Twitter files exposed, how the federal government was directly involved in censoring and deplatforming people just because they didn't like what was being said and using the social media companies as the middlemen. So be very careful about whether or not you want to express support for banning TikTok, even though it is a completely garbage platform run by the Chinese to try and destroy us. But the threat of the Chinese destroying us while you know significant this way, may pale in comparison to what the left would do if they have any such authority granted to them. Now, here's a portion of the show where I'm going to be asking and answering what it is we can do, right? Because just going off and using the precedent that they set against them is not enough because in all reality, this whole eye for an eye going down that road is going to destroy the country and really fall into the leftist trap, right? Where they go off, they set a precedent to attack us. We respond by doing the same thing back to them. Only when we do it, there will be actual legitimate reasons and actual evidence, but that doesn't stop the downward spiral, does it? It may temporarily cause them to hesitate, but we need to be thinking long-term. Because the left certainly have, and that is the public school. See, the left un may understand that we'll use the precedent that they said uh, against them, and it may temporarily be hard on them, you know, financially, but because of their attacks on the public school system, 
they're banking on never actually being held accountable. They may have to deal with it financially for a while, and even then, they're probably counting on being able to fundraise their legal expenses so that they're not actually out any money, and then having a leftist that will always cause a hung jury to prevent prosecution. But long term, they're taking a look at what they're doing in the school system as the end game to making sure to permanently change the culture to abandon freedom, democracy, and the constitutional republic for the implementation of authoritarian rule. So we need to really be lightning focused on the schools and what we can do. And luckily, we have seen from the left how we can go through and change the school and reverse the tide against them. So how do we go about doing that? Well, there are two plans of action that I see, right? And that is through state legislatures, where we have the numbers, and without state legislatures, where the left has the ability to filibuster and prevent the legislation from going through. So if we have enough numbers in the legislature, right, in areas where we have a Republican legislature and a Republican governor, we can just start passing this by law through the legislature at the state level. If we have you know, a supermajority in the legislature, but it's a Democrat in the governorship, well, then through the supermajority, we can override a governor's veto and get this implemented. But if there is a situation here, and I will go through and tell you what the plan of action is here soon, but if we have a situation where we have a Republican governor, but the Democrats have the numbers, whether they control the state legislature or have enough to be able to sustain indefinitely a filibuster to prevent the laws from getting passed? Well, we have seen from the federal level and through some of the state levels how you can still get things implemented without the legislative branch, how you can implement it through new guidelines and new regulation through the governor's office or the State Department of Education. So, There are multiple ways in which we can go through and get this passed, whether we just implement it through new guidelines, through the Department of Education on the state levels, you know, just reimagining the definitions or just issuing new regulations and guidelines without legislative approval, because you may not need it, especially if the legislature already delegated their authority and Republicans have enough numbers to prevent them from being able to repeal it. So now that we know that there are different ways in which we can go through and make changes to the schools, wherever the Republicans at least are in control of the governorship and the Department of Education in the state, what are some of those changes that could be implemented? Well, we could start off by implementing uh, a new rule, uh, new policy guidelines or new education guidelines that state that all kids before they graduate must actually read the Constitution of the United States, and not only read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but they must read the writings of our founding fathers who wrote the Constitution, explaining what the the sections of the Constitution mean, you know, going through and explaining the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, the separation of power between the legislative and executive branch. Force them to actually be able to read the Constitution and what it says and understand what it says through the writings of the authors of each section of the Constitution. 
them being able to understand the Constitution will make it much harder for the left to violate the Constitution and claim, oh, well, this is what the Constitution says, when people can go through and go, no, I don't see it there. I've read it. It's not there. So that is one thing that they can go through. Another thing that can be implemented is when talking about history in the public school system, when talking about, let's say, slavery, for instance, well, a lot of the founding fathers wanted to abolish slavery from the get-go, but there were a few that didn't. And the complexity of going, okay, well, if we abolish um, slavery now, these states won't join us, or these territories won't join us, and that would give an end for the British Empire to stage an attack to undo the revolution. You know, going through the complexities there, but then after that, when talking about you know slavery and history, maybe make it a requirement to point out the political affiliation of the slave owner. I mean, you could also go through and talk about the demographics of the slave owners and how uh, nearly half of them were blacks as well, and the demographics of the actual slaves, you know, which was not just black, but going through and talking about the political affiliation, pointing out that it was the Democrats that were the party of slavery, whenever you're talking about it in history, pointing out that it was the Democrats that was the party of segregation, the Democrats that were the party of the KKK, the Democrats that stood against the civil rights movement. See, the left, when they go through and they talk about history, is they go off to remove the political affiliation of those engaged in all the sins of history. And what the left has done is they have edited history to remove the complexity. They edited history to remove how much disagreement there were on a lot of the issues and a lot of the problems in history. And they definitely removed any notion or indication of how each side was politically aligned, what party they were aligned with, what political ideology they were with. And so they go through and edit out key facts of history in order to promote a narrative and try to say, well, it was just nationwide, it was a complete sin you know, of everybody, rather than focusing on who was actually engaged in those despicable behaviors. So we need to add back in the political affiliation of all of those involved on each side, you know, making sure that they know that it was the Democrats behind a lot of the detestable behaviors and how it was the Republicans fighting back against it. Next, when we go through and we talk about you know, school and history, you know, make sure that they get a you know, very clear view of how Hitler was able to rise to power, his playbook, how Mao Zedong rose to power, how they seek to divide and conquer, blame one group of people for all their problems, and how they use the idea of a utopian socialist society that never actually comes about, that it's just a trap, a trick for murderous authoritarian. So that is you know, a couple of things. But also we see here parental rights. So we see Kansas has advanced a bill that permits parents to opt their children out of LGBTQ lessons. So yes, being able to go through and say, hey, you know, if you have a lesson that involves LGBTQ, parents have the ability to opt their kids out of it. And therefore, for the parents that opted their kids out of it, you can't teach that to their kid. Now, how effective is that going to be? 
Well, right now, we see that the schools are hiding from the parents what they are teaching the kids. Now, this law tends to want to try and address that, but think about how the schools are now trying to help, or not help, but trying to transition kids and hide the transition from the parents, lying to the parents, purposely deceiving the parents. So if you're going to go through and have legislation like this that says the parents are able to opt their kids out of LGBTQ lessons, you also need a way to monitor the school's compliance with that. But for me, I would go a little bit further. I'd remove it all from the schools itself, you know, that for the schools, they're not allowed to talk about it. And that the only education about, you know, us, you know, sex or so forth in the public schools was how reproduction works. So the schools should be able to be forced, you know, through either legislative action or through the State Department of Education's and governor's office to teach the kids the truth that gender is binary, that there's only two chromosome pairs, how 100% of the population with this chromosome pair has these features and 100% of those with this chromosome pair has that feature as far as reproduction and the only method by which reproduction occurs. That's it. Basic biology and how reproduction occurs. And then everything else is not taught in the school, but left to the parent to talk about. So that gives that. So that will do a lot to push back against this whole transgender radical ideology. Right. And you go through and you keep pushing that so that the teachers cannot go through and push their transgender ideology onto the kids because they're not allowed to talk about it. The parents would, would be the ones that would instruct anything out of basic biology and reproduction. Then beyond that, where we do have the legislature on our side to be able to implement law, whether those laws be implemented by overriding a Democrat veto or by being able to have the numbers to push it through the legislature with a Republican governor, we need to create transparency laws that make it a crime for the schools to lie and deceive the parents, to make it a crime punishable by imprisonment for the school to try and hide what they are teaching from the parents, to make it so that the parents or that the school has to provide a list of all the books in their library, that the parents have the ability to review all the textbooks, if they so choose to exercise such option, and that any attempt to transition a child into the transgender ideology and hide it from the parents is a criminal offense under state law. So it really becomes very simple here. We remove the ability of the schools to operate in secret and operate in the shadows and being able to keep hidden from the parents what they are teaching, but then also you know, using government to prevent the schools from radicalizing kids, you know, through forcing them to read the Constitution and the writings of our founding fathers, through adding more context to history by explaining what political parties were on each side of each conflict, analyzing how dictators, murderous dictators, rose to power through divide and conquer tactics of dividing the people amongst themselves by, yes, flat out banning the schools from engaging in certain topics or certain instructions because those instructions are false or blatant lies to begin with 
and only seek to radically indoctrinate kids based off of a delusion. Basically, it would be to outlaw the school from basically propagandizing the kid. You know, there's a lot of things that we would be able to do. And for those kids that are halfway through the process of indoctrination and brainwashing in the public schools, the teachers must apologize to the kid, admitting and confessing how they have been lying to the kids all these years and, the, and that they have been lying in order to indoctrinate them. So you can see there's a lot of things that we would be able to do. Now, maybe you don't think my list is long enough, which, by the way, it's just a summary, or doesn't go far enough. Hey, I understand. Maybe you are a little hesitant and going, well, if we do this, then they'll do this in the areas in which they control. What? What? But I got a newsflash for you. The left is already doing this type of stuff, the exact opposite of what I'm saying, um, are already you know, passing laws and through the Department of Education on the state level to push their radicalized agenda through the public school. So it's up to us to be able to take that same process to undo the radicalization in schools. Now, we see this happening, you know, banning uh, men from competing in women's sport by simply declaring that they're women. And we also see that there is, you know, a hard road ahead. I mean, the Supreme Court, you know, is going to hear a case about uh, transgender athlete and state bans on it. And while they're hearing it, they're putting an injunction on the law, right? So that while they are waiting to hear the case, they're going to still allow men to compete in women's sport. And so how this turns out, well, can determine a lot about the future of our efforts here. But in the end, and by the way, there was a lot more that I was going to get to. I never seem to be able to get to everything. But in the end, we can model to some extent the left's actions on how they implemented their radical ideology and use that same model for unradicalizing the school and holding them accountable and blocking them from being able to engage in their ideological subversion tactic. And by the way, it's not that we should do that. We must do that for the future of our country because no short-term wins right now is going to last so long as the school is able to brainwash kids in the classroom to undermine our country's future, to basically go through and vote to repeal the Constitution for the next Hitler to rise up. You know, if we allow the school unchecked to implement the radical leftist agenda, we have no future as a country. And so we need to take every step and measure to remove the political indoctrination in the school, the radicalization in the schools, the America-hating, freedom-hating agenda of the left in the public school. We need to remove that by any means necessary. All right, that's it uh, for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this episode around. Thank you so much, and I will be back again next week.